This is the first day of this September 2020 two-day session. And today we'll be uh, reading and commenting on a novice to master. And the subtitle is An Ongoing Lesson in the Extent of My Own Stupidity by Soko Morinaga. But before we read from that, I'm going to start talking a little bit about uh, Zazen and listening to Dharma talks. Um, Just because we do have so many uh, newcomers here uh, that for them, it is their first sashin. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, listening to Teisho, or in my case, Dharma Talk. And we'll be reading from a new book that came out just recently called Finding Your Seat, a Zen Handbook. And it is written by our very own Sensei Amala Wrightson. And uh, for those who don't know her, I'll just read a little bit about her, um, her biography here in the back about the author's. So again, the book is Finding Your Seat, a Zen Handbook by Sensei Amala Raisin. And she is the resident teacher and spiritual director of the Auckland Zen Center. She began practicing Zen in 1982, and she and her husband, Richard Von Sturmer, attended a workshop with Philip Kaplow, author of Three Pillars of Zen. In the late 80s, she and Richard left New Zealand and their work in experimental theater to pursue residential Zen training at the Rochester Zen Center. And that, of course, is our center here in Rochester that was founded by Philip Roshi Kaplow. And she goes on, as there is no similar training uh, available in New Zealand at the time. Uh, so working in Rochester with Kaplow's successor, Roshi Bowden Colheed, which is the current abbot, uh, Wrightson was ordained as a Zen priest in 1999 and authorized to teach Zen in 2004. She then returned to Auckland, intending to make available in New Zealand the training she had received and was sanctioned as a full Dharma heir of Roshi Colheed in 2012. Sensei Wrightson has offered meditation instruction, talks on Zen, and opportunities for practice and retreat both at the center and at other locations around Auckland for the past 15 years. And she does also come here uh, annually, uh, but because of the pandemic, um, there was just no way for her to come this year. She usually comes for a period of about a month. She was a founding member of the New Zealand Buddhist Council, as well as its chairperson for a decade, and she is a member of the American Zen Teachers Association. All right, so going from there, I'm just going to talk a little bit about uh, listening to a Dharma talk. This is chapter four under working with a teacher. And she starts, in Zen... Points of teaching are communicated to practitioners in a variety of ways. Perhaps one of the most obvious, as well as the most culturally comfortable for Westerners, is the tradition of Dharma talk. Uh, In the book, she's talking about Teisho, actually, 
Um, Taisho is uh, a Zen talk by a Zen teacher. Uh, but for senior students, uh, the word we use is Dharma talk. So I'm just going to substitute uh, Taisho for the word Dharma talk. Okay, is a tradition of Dharma talks in which the senior student delivers a talk while the student listens. Of course, there are some important differences between a Dharma talk and a lecture that you might hear at school or at work. From the point of view of the student, there are several things to keep in mind when listening to Dharma talks. First of all, we are asked while listening to maintain a zazen posture and also as much as possible to continue with our practice. If we are doing a breath practice, this doesn't mean that we need to count breaths while the teacher speaks, but we should try to maintain an awareness of the body and the breath and to stay as physically and mentally present as we can. If we are working on a koan, we should try to maintain awareness of that koan during the talk if we find, on the other hand, that it proves to be too complicated to keep our formal practice going while listening to the talk, uh, for instance, if one is counting the inhalations and exhalations, um, then the instruction is to maintain the zazen posture and just listen. So again, you know, if it's you're finding it too difficult uh, to follow the inhalations or exhalations, counting them, uh, then drop it and just listen. In other words, to bring the attention as fully as possible to the act of listening to the teacher. Actively. So that, that's that effort that we often talk about uh, that needs to happen in Zen practice. And it can't really be described. Each one of us has to figure that out. It's not straining, obviously, with the body physically, although a lot of us, uh, when we come to practice, have a tendency to do that. Um, it's just something that works itself naturally if you are putting in the effort uh, while sitting or listening to a Dharma talk. So actively, actively practicing in any of these ways during a talk can make our minds more receptive to what the teacher is presenting than might otherwise be the case. Yes, um, because we have a tendency to be less caught up in our, hurt, in our thoughts during a Taisho or Dharma talk. Uh, this, is particularly, this particularly applies uh, to later on in Sashin for, say, a seven-day Sashin, uh, come day five and day six and day seven, uh, we can really be receptive and open to what the teacher or senior student has to say uh, in their talks because we're less bound up in our thoughts. Note that while the instruction is to maintain a Zazen posture, Dharma talks can be long, and it's, it is fine to change position if needed during the course of the talk. So yeah, uh, we usually talk around anywhere between 45 to 50 minutes. Uh, so feel free to change your posture uh, if you need to. Uh, another difference between listening to a Dharma talk and listening to an academic or informational lecture is that with Dharma talks, we are encouraged to 
take what we need and leave the rest. What the teacher hopes to communicate is not essentially informational. And even though a Dharma talk may include a fair amount of information, there is no requirement that we retain it. As we listen in a state of receptivity, certain words or phrases may have a deep impact on us. It may open our minds in some way or spark an insight. At the same time, listening in a state of openness means not only letting things come, but also letting them go. We don't need to attach to anything that is said. This reminds me of uh, someone uh, recently in private instruction asked me about chanting, uh, which we're not doing right now. Um, Yeah, she was thinking about memorizing and uh, studying uh, affirming faith in mind, uh, which if you have a chant book, uh, is about six pages long. It's our longest chant. Well, uh, I told her you don't have to do that. You don't even have to memorize it. If you're coming to the center regularly where we have that chanting, then especially for that, there's no need to memorize it. Your, your body mind will just simply absorb it and you'll, you'll learn it that way. It's, it's certainly the way I learned it. And as for studying uh, that particular chant or any other chant, that's not really our business in Zen. Our business in Zen is the meditation, Zazen. Uh, doing the meditation and bringing it out into our daily lives, whatever activity we may be doing. There really isn't much room for study in in, in our Zen practice. You can. Um, but my own experience of not studying the sutras or just mainly reading a lot of books on Buddhism or Zen, uh, and then particularly chants, my own experience with that is it will resonate. No need to try and figure them out, a certain line, this or that. Um, as you deepen, as one deepens their own practice, as time goes on, there will be certain words or certain lines in a chant that will start to resonate. And that is a receptivity we're talking about. That is that attention that we're putting onto our practice that we just naturally open up to the teachings of the Buddha or any other chant. Uh, and then it changes from time. We, there are certain lines we'll get uh, in our bodies, in, our, in the core. It's not necessarily an intellectual thing. It'll, they'll just really resonate. And then as time goes on, um, some other line or word will resonate and we'll have a deeper understanding of practice and the chant. The same thing applies to listening to Teisho uh, from a teacher. As time goes on, just the things he or she will say in Teisho will resonate. Uh, Aha! Oh, now I understand it. He's been saying that for years. But then I understand it more deeply. We are the school that goes beyond words and letters.
right? We'll pick back up. We don't need to attach to anything that is said. Just as some words may spark an understanding or insight, other words may annoy or aggravate us, or we may feel strong disagreement. For the most part, it is best if we can just observe these feelings as they arise and let them pass, releasing them and letting them go while releasing and letting go of the teacher's words. Yes. So uh, whatever, if you feel, if you have strong feelings um, about certain things, uh, it's best to just stay focused on the practice, experience whatever you're experiencing and letting it go. No need to analyze or figure out he or she is wrong and this is why, this is that. You may feel that, um, but in the long run, it's just your one is in a much better position uh, of just doing Zazen. I, I was always, one of the lines that struck me early on in one of Roshi's Teishos um, is at one point he just said, this is my current understanding of the Dharma. So it's not fixed. He or she as a teacher, as time goes on, as, as they deepen their own practice, their understanding and insight into things as they are, uh, will change. Their understanding of certain teachings will change. Ah, it just reminds me of what uh, one of the mantras said early on. I think it was Donna just said, go with the flow. This does not mean that we should never ask a question or bring up a problem that has arisen for us in listening to Teisho. But for the most part, it is best to follow the instructions to stay open, stay in the moment, and when the Dharma talk is over, to just forget about it, knowing that any important insights will bear fruit without the need for us to hold on to them. Teisho and Dharma talks are only one of the ways in which Zen teachings are communicating. Paying attention to the details of posture and etiquette reviewed in the previous chapters is another important way of incorporating the teachings on an intuitive, non-verbal level. Yes, speaking of which, I invite um, newcomers when they come uh, for private instruction to feel free to ask me questions about posture uh, or etiquette. It's not, it's not uh, f obviously forbidden to ask these questions. Uh, we want you to get the protocol down uh, because then once you've got it down, you can just forget it. And then you can really focus on your practice and, and stop asking should I bow at this point or that part. Best to just ask, feel free to ask. You can ask, uh, yeah, just ask me in private instruction and I can help you out with that. We really have, um, with the history here in Rochester with the Zen Center, uh, we really have, I, I've heard over the decades that we have simplified the protocol. It's not as uh, extensive as it is, as it is in Japan. Uh, just, uh, just as a quick example, uh, initially I believe that when one entered into the Doksan room, uh, Doksan is the private instruction with the teacher, uh, we used to do three bows or three prostrations on the mat. Uh, well, we cut that down to one 
prostration and for the for, for one who is a formal student of the teacher. Otherwise one just comes in, uh, if they're not a student, they come in and, and they do a standing bow and then sit down on the mat. So that's just an example of how we're just um, accommodating it to our needs as, as Americans, as North Americans, um, and making it less, uh, in a way, less uh, Japanese. Uh, I, of course, can't not help to say, of course, without um, throwing away the authenticity of Zen. Okay, so back to this protocol. Um, this style of learning may not be as familiar to some of us as listening to lectures, but much can be learned by simply observing how the teacher, priests, and senior students conduct themselves and by trying to harmonize with the group. Okay, so um, just to uh, restate that when listening to a Dharma talk, just listen. Uh, you can drop the counting of the inhalations and exhalations, just follow the breath and just actively listen, putting in that effort to just listen. Noticing, noticing if thoughts come into the mind, but as much as possible uh, to listen. Um, I remember long ago, uh, Roshi's, when he himself was talking about this, uh, to, uh, he put it this way, act as though you're the only person in the room listening. And then I'll just mention, read this paragraph um, about private instruction. Sometimes at our center, this is the Auckland Zen Center, uh, private instruction will be offered instead of doksan. Procedurally, the two are familiar, though not identical. But private instruction is offered by a senior practitioner, not a teacher. The main technical difference between the two is that koans are not investigated in private instruction. This, we've already mentioned this. In addition to this technicality, however, you may find that doksan and private instruction have quite a different spirit and may function in rather different, though complementary, ways in our practice. Doksan interviews tend to be briefer and more sharply focused on the formal practice. In private instruction, there may be time to talk more expansively about issues that are coming up in the course of your practice hear about and learn from the experiences of the person offering private instruction and just to receive encouragement. In other words, private instruction can be more of a peer-to-peer -peer experience than is generally the case with Doksan. Okay, so now we'll move on to uh, our main book, which is Novice to Master uh, by Soko Morinaga. Uh, we always like to mention a few things about the teacher or the author of the book. So we'll start with that. So 
Soko Morinaga Roshi was born in 1925. After graduating from high school, he entered Zen practice. He was ordained as a monk by Zuigan Goto in 1948. Remember that name, it's prominent in this book, Zuigan. Zuigan Goto. So from 1945 through 1963, this Soko Morinaga uh, trained in the monastery at Dai. Daitokuji, and received the seal of Dharma transmission from Seso Ota Roshi, uh, while actively working in the lay community, delivering talks and writing books and articles. He served as the head of Hanazono University, the primary training university of the Rinzai sect in Kyoto. He had a long-standing connection with the Buddhist Society of London and traveled there every year to practice in the summer school jointly sponsored by various Buddhist sects. Morinaga Roshi died in 1995. Okay, so now we'll get right into his book. And this chapter is called The Prospect of My Own Death. And he starts, If I were to sum up the past 40 years of my life, the time since I became a monk, I would have to say that it has been an ongoing lesson in the ex extent of my own stupidity. When I speak of my stupidity, I do not refer to something that is innate, but rather to the false impressions that I have cleverly stockpiled, layer upon layer, in my imagination. Unlearning. This is a word uh, we may hear occasionally uh, because really that's what it is. Zen practice is just peeling away. Uh, have an image of an onion and you're just peeling away the layers. The layers of our conditioning, uh, the way we grew up as children, conditions of our society, of culture, all the various ways um, that have affected us uh, through our daily lives. It's peeling away that and seeing what is true. Whenever I travel to foreign countries to speak, I am invariably asked to focus on one central issue. Just what is Satori? Just what is enlightenment? This thing called Satori, however, is a state that one can understand only through experience. It cannot be explained or grasped through words alone. It had occurred to me just recently um, that perhaps that's one of the reasons why we have so many different words for it, uh, namely true nature, original nature, our original mind. It's all pointing, all these words are pointing to the experience that cannot be described. By way of example, there is a proverb that says, to have a child is to know the heart of a parent. Regardless of how a parent may demonstrate the parental mind to a child, that child cannot completely understand it. Only when children become parents themselves do they fully know the heart of a parent. Such an understanding can be likened to enlightenment, although enlightenment is far deeper still. Because no words can truly convey the experience of enlightenment, 
Here, I will discuss the essentials for awakening, the essentials of Zen training. Zen training is not a matter of memorizing the wonderful words found in the sutras in the records of ancient teachers. Rather, these words must serve as an impetus to crush the false notion of one's imagination. Again, I'll say it. Rather, these words must serve as an impetus to crush the false notions of one's imagination. The purpose of practice is not to increase knowledge, but to scrape the scales off the eyes, to pull the plugs out of the ears. Through practice, one comes to see reality. And although it is said that no medicine can cure folly, whatever prompts one to realize, quote, I was a fool, is in fact just such a medicine. I want to talk a little bit about this. I was a fool. So much promise. So much promise when one realizes uh, the folly how her mind works, the things we say, the unskillful things we say, the unskillful things we do at times. Uh, to see that, to own up on that, to own up to it, um, that is a sign. That is a, a sign that we're progress. Pro if we want to talk about progress uh, of our Zen practice, I'm not talking about beating ourselves up. That is kind of like the the dark side of our own conditioning is to think that we're just useless human beings when we when we screw up no 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 it's good to notice it's good to see that how our mind uh functions and to make that course correction and how do we do that course correction of course of course i'm going to say uh, but i can't repeat it enough is through the daily practice of zen through the daily practice of our zen practice it's the noticing and not doing anything about it. As soon as we notice, uh, say something unskillful that we did years ago, we we may not even been aware uh, that we hurt that person's feelings. They may have not said anything. Well, then that's the noticing, and from there, just get back to the practice. Of course, if if one. realizes uh, that they did say something uh, that was really unskillful and unnecessary uh, to someone that they know, then yeah, just go back and apologize. That's, that's the action. That's the action part of uh, the practice. It is also said that good medicine is bitter to the taste. And sadly enough, the medicine that makes people aware of their own foolishly, foolishness certainly is acrid. The, real, the realization that one has been stupid seems always to be accompanied by so-called trials and tribulations, by setbacks and sorrows. I spent the first half of my own life writhing under the effects of this bitter medicine.
next chapter, Nothing is Certain. Okay, so now we're going to discuss a little bit about his life, um, which I think is, is helpful to, to learn a little bit more about this Soko Morinaga growing up. Uh, he was in the army. Um, I, he doesn't talk to what extent he was involved during the Second World War, but we pick up uh, from the post-Second World War, uh, 1945. For better or for worse, I returned from the army alive. Over a short wave radio, an item extremely hard to come by in those days, I listened to the fate of the German leaders who had surrendered just a step ahead of the Japanese. When I heard the sentence that was read aloud at the Nuremberg trials, death by hanging, the one word, hanging, lodged itself so tenaciously in my ears that I can still hear its echo. I cannot help but think that at that very moment, the young Philip Kaplow was in Nuremberg, Nuremberg, Japan, uh, Nuremberg, Germany, as a court reporter, uh, on the verge of embarking um, to the Tokyo trials in Japan and Zen. And then, so again, I'll repeat that sentence. The one word, hanging, lodges itself so tenaciously in my ears that I can still hear its echo. And then, perhaps through an American occupation forces policy, a news film was shown. I saw this film at what is now the site of a department store on the fifth floor of a crumbling cement block building that had only just narrowly escaped demolition in war-ravaged downtown Toyana. In one scene, a German general was dragged to the top of a high platform and hanged before the great crowd that assembled in the plaza. In another scene, the Italian leader Mussolini was lynched by a mob and then strung upside down on a wire beside the body of his lover. Wearing cast-off military uniforms, my classmates and I went back to school. One by one, we returned young men unable to believe in anything and hounded by the question of right and wrong. Although technically classes were resumed, in reality, no studying took place. If a teacher walked into the classroom, textbook under his arm, he would be asked to take a seat on the sidelines while members of the group who had just returned from the army took turns at the podium. And I imagine this is one of these soldiers speaking. Fortunately or not, we've been repatriated and were able to come back to school. But what we thought to be right turned out overnight to be wrong. I assume what he's talking about is uh, Japanese imperialism and their engagement in war, in the Second World War. We may live another 40 or 50 years, but are we ever going to be able to believe in anything again, in a, quote, right that can't be altered, in a, quote, wrong that isn't going to change on us? If we don't resolve these for ourselves, no amount of study is ever going to help us 
build conviction in anything. Well, what do you fellows think? These, these notions of right and wrong. I imagine it must have been such a shock. Um, it can be, it could have been such a shock for someone who was so convinced that what they were doing was right to suddenly realize that they were wrong. Rather than get into uh, this dualistic thinking of right and wrong, uh, and we can use the precepts, for example, the, these 10 cardinal precepts uh, that we recite in a formal ceremony, the 10 Buddhist precepts, I always like to mention that rather than seeing them as right and wrong, seeing them as how do I cause the least amount of harm to myself and to others? Don't need to see them in terms of right and wrong. Yes, of course, as I mentioned earlier, if, you, if one realizes that one did something unskillful and caused harm to another, uh, and then they no notice it through their zazen, then that's when the action takes place and we can atone for what we've done. But right and wrong gets into this really, uh, another way of putting this black and white, uh, getting into this, this morality and beating oneself up or praising oneself uh, if one feels they've done something right. Uh, that's just not necessary. That's not our business. Our business is causing the least amount of harm to ourselves and to others. Knowing, knowing that we're going to screw up when practicing these precepts. I think, in fact, I'm just skipping over here a little bit. I think, in fact, that this was a dilemma of the times for Japan, common not only among young people like us, but among middle-aged and elderly people as well. We had completely lost sight of any ethical norm. I believe Japan had fallen into a state in which people scarcely knew what standards to apply, even in raising their own children. On top of it, all this, there were major changes in my own private affairs. To begin with, the year before the war ended, I had lost both of my parents in one blow. Even as my mother was slipping away, my father suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and died the very next morning. August, and this was on August 24th, and he never regained consciousness. I have three older sisters, but all of them had already married and moved away. They were living in Moji, Shanghai, and Manchuria. Travel conditions being what they were in that day, none of my sisters was able to attend the funeral. As a sole survival on the family's registry, I was responsible for the funeral arrangements, which I completed within two days with help from relatives. 
Then, before I could settle any further affairs, I received my mustering order and found myself off to the army. Upon my homecoming after the war had ended, I was greeted with the twin problems of property and inheritance taxes. I come from a long line of landowners and the small amount of land we had was under tenancy in rice fields. My father had always taught me, there's nothing as dependable as land. Even if there's a fire, it won't burn. If there's a flood, it won't wash away. If a thief sneaks in, he can't cart it off in his back, on his back. No matter what else you do in this life, don't you let go of that land. It so happened, though, that though no action of my own, my family's land was lost to the government agrarian reform program. Not dependable after all. Really, the theme that Morinaga Roshi, or maybe I'll just call him Soko Roshi, um, is that we can't depend on anything. So now with even this gone, his land, what was left to believe in? All that I had ever thought to be certain had turned out to be uncertain. The war I had thought was holy turned out to be evil. I had not expected my own parents to die so suddenly, and yet there they went, one right after the other. The, insur the insurance money that my father had set aside to provide for his children in the event that something should happen to him was subject to a freezing of funds and not a cent was available for my use and our ever dependable land was now lost. Oh, such hardship at such a young age. Looking back on myself in those days, I realized that it would not have been so curious if I had joined a gang of hooligans, nor would it have been strange if I had committed suicide by hurling my body onto a railroad track. I woke up miserable every morning and every day was as good as lost. Falling asleep in the worst of spirits, I would awaken to a new morning even darker. This vicious cycle continued day after day, but somehow I managed to graduate from high school. However, as I had absolutely no inclination to enroll in university or to study anything at all, I went on to pass the days idly slouching around. Then, in the midst of that intense mental agony, I finally struck upon a realization. For as long as I could remember, I had done nothing but read books acquire knowledge, churn up theories. The reason that I was now at a total loss for what to do with myself was, in the end, that I had never really used this body of mine in any kind of disciplined way. This young Soko Morinaga is ripe. He is, he is, he has gone through so much change and so much mental anguish, emotional mental anguish, 
And now this realization that no matter how much we know, no matter how much we have, land, wealth, it can all disappear. And even the knowledge that he accumulated from reading and his studies have brought him up short. Not really, not really seeking the, the, the real answers. He's certainly at a turning point. a little more next chapter the encounter at misery's end so it was through these mysterious causes and conditions that i was i was led to knock at the gates of zen temples i still feel very grateful that after calling at two or three temples i was brought to dashuin in kyoto where i still reside to train under zuigan goto roshi zuigan roshi formerly the abbot of Myoshinji at that time the abbot of Daitokiji was truly a great man. I showed up at Roshi's door with a long stringy hair, unkempt with a towel hanging from my waist and heavy clogs on my feet. This great man first words, this great man's first words to me were, "Why have you come here?" In reply, I rambled on for about an hour and a half, covering the particulars of my situation up to and including my present state. Roshi listened in silence, not attempting to insert so much as a single word. When I had finished my exposition, he spoke. Listening to you now, I can see that you've reached a point where there's nothing you can believe in. But there is no such thing as practice without believing in your teacher. Can you believe in me? If you can, I'll take you on right now, as you are. But if you can't believe in me, then your being here is just a waste of time. And you can go right on back where you came from. Zuigan Roshi, for his part, set forth in no uncertain terms from the very beginning the precept of believing wholeheartedly in one's teacher. But I was not sensible enough at that time to yield with a ready and honest, Okay! Roshi was then 70 years old, and I told myself, That foolish old man, so what if he is the head of Myoshinji or the head of Daitokuji? Lots of important people. And important is in quotation marks. Lots of quote, important people in this world aren't worth much. If believing were so easy that I could just believe unconditionally in somebody I had just met for the first time, then wouldn't I have believed in something before I ever showed up here? Didn't I come here in the first place because I don't find it so easy to believe? Thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. All this ran through my mind, but I knew from the start that if I said it aloud, I would be told straight away. In that case, you being here is a waste of my time. Go on home now. Figuring that, even if my words were a lie, this man would have to let me stay if I spoke them. And so I said, I believe in you. 
please. At that time, I had no idea of the weight of these words, I believe, but it was a lesson I was to be taught before the end of that very day. <clears throat> okay, so our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.